we can plug in there and we can make a difference. And so uh, we, we plug in and, and serve and, uh, and strive to make a difference. And that's a good, that's a good thing. That's probably the main reason that people, that people serve is compassion. But there are others. Uh, one is, uh, second one is um, uh, guilt. Uh, probably the, the church is best at leveraging this, uh, if I'm being honest. But there's, sometimes you just feel guilty. I mean, we talk about there's a need and it's not being met and there's a problem there and you can make a difference if you just love Jesus enough and we just leverage guilt and um, it's a, and I, at staff meeting we regularly will say I, I I've said this sometimes guilt's a terrible motivator and it is ultimately but initially sometimes it gets people to line up and so we uh, leverage guilt some people serve because of guilt even though it is a terrible motivator. So guilt is another, another reason that people serve. Another one is uh, we think that we can earn God's favor by serving, by, by helping out other people. We think God will, we, you know, at the end of our life, we'll, we'll be able to line up this resume. If you remember in 2018, I went down to Houston. I helped out some hurricane victims in 2011. You wouldn't believe God. I, I, months, every day for months, I helped uh, get our town back after the tornado. I know it was several years ago, but you got to count that. You got to give me credit for it. Um, and so that's another, that's another reason that people serve, people help other people, is because they think God will, 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 will uh, appreciate them. Will, they can find his favor by serving other people. Uh, another one, a, a fourth one that I can think of, and there are many, but there are just four that I, that I uh, just came right off the top of my head. The fourth one is pride. Now, this, is, this will surprise you, maybe. Um, but these are the nice people. These are the people that uh, they'll show up. They're, they're nice. They're considerate. They're the people pleasers. I actually fall into this category myself, honestly. Uh, and, and here's what uh, the, those that are motivated by pride are thinking. Now, they don't say it like this, but here's what they're thinking. You ask them, how's everything going, what you've been up to? And they will say, I've been, I've been working at the homeless shelter. If you were as good as me, you would work at the homeless shelter too. But because you're not, I know you're going to think more of me. Now, obviously we're not saying that because we want you to like us. We want you to think highly of us. But inside, we're thinking, I'm a better person than you are because I serve. And I know you think that as well. And that's why I do it. That's why I do it. And that is pride. And God will have none of it. None of it. In fact, if you read the Gospels, um, the motivation for our service is as important as the service itself. What motivates us, what drives us, what, what um, uh, is the engine in causing us to serve is as important as doing the work itself. Which is why in our, in our um, vision statement, in the, in the reason that we exist, one of the tenets of, of our existence, we say gospel-centered service. Because the gospel is what drives us. It is this idea that we have been served by a God who loves us, by a God who, who did not have to come. Uh, we are served by a, a God who sent his one and only son uh, to slide into the sandals of humanity, become one of us, and serve us in our sin, in spite of ourselves, when we could never give anything back. That is what drives us to serve other people. And any other motivation... God will have none of. 
Now, compassion drives that. But if it's so that we look better ourselves, that's just prideful. And so the gospel is what drives our service, is what motivates us to love other people. And Jesus is the one who, who uh, uh, did this the best. He's the one who, who was our prime example. He's the one who modeled this all throughout his ministry. He is our example. And so this morning, what I want to do is give you a story, share with you a story. You've probably heard it before, but it's a great illustration of what it means to have the gospel motivate us to serve other people. So if you have your Bible, John chapter 13, as you're turning there, John chapter 13, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. But let me set up what's going on. Jesus and his disciples are in the last few hours of Jesus' life. He's had his three years of ministry. Now we're in the last 24 hours. And Jesus and his closest followers, his 12 disciples, head up into a room. And, they, and actually in the book of John, there's a, a, a corner that John turns here. Chapter 13, he has what's called the upper room discourse through the next four chapters. Um, he has a, a, an upper room discourse where it's just him and his disciples having a conversation. And he's getting them ready to lead without him present. And in this particular evening is um, uh, right before Jesus is arrested, tried, and crucified. And they're having a meal together. They're having the, the Passover meal. And you will remember this, this uh, meal that the, the first generation of the first century Jews had in, in all previous generations. God, back in Exodus, delivers the, the uh, Jewish nation, the Israelites, from the hand of Pharaoh. And he does it by sending a death angel. And he tells them, cover your doorposts with the blood of the lamb. And any doorpost that's not covered, I'm going to take out the, the oldest child in that house. And then generation after generation, year after year, they celebrate this deliverance. And that's what Jesus and his disciples are celebrating this particular evening. They're celebrating the Passover meal. And on this evening, something extraordinary happens. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. John chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had taken all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So remember, this is 22, 24 hours, less than 24 hours before Jesus is going to die. And the Bible tells us two different times in verse 1 and in verse 3, Jesus is fully aware of what's about to happen. Like, this is not taken him by surprise. He doesn't show up to Jerusalem, and out of nowhere, somebody takes him, arrests him, and he is completely oblivious to it. The Bible tells us the opposite. He is completely aware of what is about to happen. He knows he is about to hang on a cross. And look at what he does this particular evening. He laid aside his outer garments. And taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When Jesus does this, when he washes his disciples' feet, it's not only surprising, 
I mean, it is insulting to the people that are present. I mean, they are, they're insulted by this because they lived in a dry and an arid environment. And, and it was customary that you would walk to dinner. Uh, when you were invited to somebody's house, you would walk there with your sandals on. And your feet would get very dirty. When you arrived there, you would take off your sandals. And a slave, not just any average slave, but the slowest slave on the totem pole, the, the newest slave, was the one who was responsible for washing the feet of the guests. That not even a, a, a high-ranking slave would do this menial task. This was for the lowest of the low. They would take off the sandals and they would wash the guests. Feet. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this in our culture. This is the best I could come up with. It would be like if your CEO, superintendent, president, highest ranking official in your place of employment was invited to your house to have dinner. And you invited them over, you wanted to get to know them. They wanted to, they took you up on the offer, obviously, they wanted to get to know you. And so they come over and they have dinner. And after dinner, they take off their, their coat and they head into the bathroom and they open up uh, the, the counter underneath the sink and they find the cleaning supplies. And they begin to wash the toilet in your, in your house. I mean, you would be appalled, right? And this guy, whoever he or she is, down on their knees and they're cleaning the toilet in your bathroom. And that just wouldn't surprise you. You would be insulted by it. I mean, you would try and grab them by the shoulders and pick up. This is not what you're supposed to do. You're a guest here. I invited you over. And he's like, yeah, I know, but, but I need to clean your toilet. In fact, you've got some, some people that miss regularly. You're, you know, wives are like, yeah, you're right. I want to take care of that. You'd be insulted by that. But that's exactly what Jesus that's equivalent to what Jesus is doing here. And this is a great example. To understand Jesus, you've got to understand him as a study in contradictions. He's a conundrum. He doesn't make sense. Because over and over and over again, he makes the claim, I am God in the flesh. I am God's son. I am God. You want to know what God looks like? You look at me. And that's what he teaches over and over and over again because it's true. But then you look at his actions and you see him doing the most humble of tasks. The most humble of tasks. He's a study in contradictions. And this is the greatest example of that. When less than 24 hours from being crucified, he takes the disciples' feet and he washes them. He goes on. Verse 6. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What am I doing? Uh, what am I doing? Uh, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Jesus says, You don't understand what's going on. In fact, you're not going to understand until after everything's completed. And he's talking about the cross. He goes on. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. I love responses like this. Like, this is why I love Peter. Because he says the most outrageous, dumbest things, and it's just like me. He said, Jesus, he tells the, the God of the universe, the one who was present at creation, you're not going to wash my feet. Like, who does he think he is? 
You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says this. If, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. That word share, it means that you are not in the will. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not in my will. You're not an heir to my throne. You don't belong to my family. I don't have time to get into it, but Jesus is saying that in a sense, whenever we, uh, whenever we are saved from our sin, when we are given the gift of eternal life, when we, when we ask God to come in to forgive us of our sin and give us the gift of eternal life, we are in essence being washed by the Holy Spirit. Our sin is being washed away. And he's using this analogy, just like the dirt and the gook and the grime is washed away whenever I cleaned your feet. So it is when the Holy Spirit comes in and washes your sin away. And Jesus says, that's how you get into my will. That's how you become part of my family. When I wash away your sin. When you ask for it. He goes on. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. This is like whiplash. And Peter's like, you're not going to touch me. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not a part of my family. You're not in the will. Peter's like, all right, then wash me from head to toe. Like all of it. Start at my, at my head and go down to my toes. I mean, he's like, I just give me a bath then. Jesus says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Jesus is carrying this analogy. He says, you've got to wash your feet, but not every one of you. He says, Peter, you're clean. You've been washed. Your, your sin has been forgiven. But not everybody in this room is in that, is in that place. Not every single person has had their sin washed away. There's somebody in this room whose sin has not been forgiven. Not you, Peter, but there is a person in here. And obviously he's talking about Judas. But with full knowledge of what is about to happen, with full knowledge, knowledge of where Judas is, look at what Jesus does. Verse 11. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Imagine for me in your mind's eye, being in the room that evening. Jesus takes off his outer garment, he puts on this towel, and begins to wash his disciples' feet, one by one by one. And he gets to Judas Iscariot, whom he knows full well is about to betray him for 30 years. Pieces of silver. And he picks up Judas's right foot and he places it in the towel. He pours water on his feet and he washes them clean. And then he takes the left foot. And he picks it up with full knowledge of what is about to happen. That Judas is about to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He takes up his left foot and he places it in the towel. And he dumps water on it. And he washes Judas's left foot clean. With full knowledge of what this man is about to do. 
He goes on. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also do just as I have done to you. Remember, feet are gross. They're repulsive. And Jesus takes them and he washes them one by one. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that in your culture, especially in our culture, most of the people that we serve look like us. They talk like us. They, they are, relatively speaking, in our socioeconomic range. And here's why we pick out those people to serve. Because we want them to think more of us. We want them to think better of us. And so we, we find people that have an intellect that, that we are, are fond of. We find people that have jobs that we look up to. We find people that, that are just kind and, and good to be around. We just have a good time being around them. And we find those people and we make a beeline to them. And why? Because we want to feel better about ourselves. And so we find people that will make us feel better about us. And that's who we serve. Not because we want them uh, to be helped out, but because we want them to like us, to want to be around us. And when we get to the motivation of our service, we realize we are pretty messed up. We serve people that we want to like us. And Jesus says, that is not the way it is with my people. That's not the way it is with my family. It is not the way it's going to be with those who call my name. You're going to find people that don't look like you, that don't act like you, that don't talk like you, that don't have your education, that have nothing to return, that have nothing to give back. Those are the people that you're going to serve. Those are the people that I want you to serve. Those are the people that I want you to love. Those are the people that I want you to admire. Those are the people that I want you to help. The people that can never give anything back. And here's why. Because, Scott, I loved you when there was nothing you could do in return for me. When you were dead in your sin, you were lost in your trespasses. I came and died the death that you could never die. And I served you out of love for you. And as that reality begins to well up, begins to grow, begins to grow, begins to grow, the natural, the natural result is that we serve people, not who can help us, not only who can help us, not only who can make us feel better about ourselves, but people who are unlovable according to our culture. Because that's what Jesus has done for us. And that's our motivation. He closes it out this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. For I know these things. For if you know these things, blessed are you 
if you do them. I'll close with this story. It's a story I told Wednesday night if you're in the marriage class. But a few years ago, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago, there was a study. And it was turned into a book called Sticky Faith. And the study went like this. Why are teenagers growing up in the church? Why are families growing up in the church? And then when, when they get to college, when these teenagers get to college, they leave the church. And many of them, most of them, never come back. Why are they leaving? What's the reason? And how can we reverse this trend? How can we change this trend? And so they did a study and they came out with some results. And they, they made a book. The book was called Sticky Faith. And they said there was no silver bullet. There was no real sil silver bullet. But if there was one, the closest one we could find is basically this. Gospel-centered service. If teenagers will watch their kid, or excuse me, if teenagers will watch their parents serving sacrificially through the power of the gospel, through the motivation of the gospel, they are more likely to stay in church as adults than those who have parents who do not. Now, my parents didn't have this study, and probably more by accident they fell into this, but I am convinced that if my parents had not practiced this, I would not be where I am today. I wouldn't love the church the way that I love it. I wouldn't want to serve the church the way that I long to serve it. I'll never forget, I was a freshman in college. My brother was a junior in high school. And Burger King, for whatever reason, they were trying to drive up sales for their, for their breakfast this particular time. And so they, uh, they set their, their biscuits uh, on sale, about half price. They, they made their, their biscuits half price. And so my mom told my brother, every day he would drive to, to school, and she said, I, I want you to just go ahead and, and pull in the Burger King, grab, grab a biscuit. They're cheaper than I could buy and make here at home. Just grab one. So he did this day after day after day. And he actually began to build a relationship with a lady that was in the drive-thru. African-American lady in Newport News, Virginia. She began to, he began to build a relationship with her. And, he, and, and she asked him one day, hey, would, do you think you would be willing to hang out with my middle school son? Dad's not in the picture. I am working two job, jobs just to try to make ends meet. Do you think you would be willing to hang out with him maybe a day, a couple days a week after school? I want him, I don't want him to get stuck in, in, in the... the um, the neighborhood, it was in downtown Newport News, which doesn't mean much to, to us here, but for me and, and for, for where I grew up, this was a, the, a difficult area. It was easy to get trapped and easy to get stuck in, in, in a, a place in life that you couldn't get out of easily. And so she longed for him not to get stuck in that, but she couldn't be there. She was working two jobs. She was up before he woke up, and she was getting back after he had gone to bed, just trying to make ends meet. She wanted to know if Jeremy, my brother, could fill in the gap. Well, Jeremy would go over to his house in the afternoons every once in a while. And then some days, um, he would act, this young man would actually come over to our house. And he would hang out there while mom was at work. We'll never, well, I'll never forget one day, my dad and my mom called us in. It was maybe over dinner or something. And they said, hey, we have got to help this lady. Called her by name. we got to help her out. We feel compelled. To pay for her rent for six months. Now you have to remember, my parents are middle class. He's a, a, an associate pastor at a church. Middle class in every sense of the word. They're sending one kid to private school because they feel compelled to do that. 
And they are, uh, they are telling us that they're going to add to their monthly payments, paying the rent for this lady so she doesn't have to work two jobs and she can be at home for her middle school son. And it was going to cost us something. We weren't going to be going on vacation that summer. We we're going to cut back in other areas because they felt compelled to serve this lady. And I remember initially being mad. We're not going on vacation. How dare you? But shortly thereafter, I remember thinking, my parents believe this stuff. They believe all the things that they have been teaching me all these years. They actually believe it. And I'm just naive enough to believe that if Southwest Missouri sees a church serving out of the motivation of the gospel, sacrificially, they just might come to the place where they would say the exact same thing. That church, Wellspring Church, they believe that stuff that they talk about. And that is why one of our tenets, one of the reasons that we exist is to serve out of the motivation of the gospel those who could never return it, who could never pay us back. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that we would serve out of the motivation of the gospel. And that people around us would say, there's something different about that church. There's something that motivates them that I'm not accustomed to. But I want it. They actually believe it. They believe what they talk about. And Father, that you're the one who can get the glory for that. You're the one who can get the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.